0: that if we continue with the way that our food system is built today, we are looking at a huge climate disaster. We are looking at reduction of people's capital earnings from the food ecosystem all across the supply chain, and we're looking at the end result of food shortages across the world.
1: Welcome to the Swisspreneur Show, a podcast about startup stories and learnings from experienced entrepreneurs. Here's your host, Sylvain. Armand, a very well welcome to the Swisspreneur Show. It's such a pleasure to have you as a guest today. Thank you for joining us.
0: Honored to be here, seeing the Swisspreneur grow from day one and since you've taken over, it's incredible. So Thank you for inviting me.
1: I, I can't wait to do our conversation. To introduce you properly, you're the co-founder of the Climate Fintech Hack Capital and also a founding member of Food Hack, the world's largest food tech community. Before we talk about what you're actually building these days, you've been in the food and climate space for almost a decade by now. But when did your environmentalist conscious actually first spring into being?
0: Mm, Yeah, you're making me sound very old though. I think of myself as still (laughs) a, a young hustler on his way up. I mean, the really, it's more than anything thanks to my mother, who's, uh, I'm a Turkish, born and raised, uh, grew up all across the world. But my Turkish parents really instilled this idea of food waste uh, and reduction of food waste from an early age. And that idea sort of went through in, in my whole life. We have this saying in, in Turkish that it's, it's gna, it's, it's bad to waste uh, food and this idea is actually what sparked the first ever food hack event, where the whole premise was, let's talk about our big, massive food waste problem, and with that, all the other issues that are coming across from the food waste sector, and let's bring people together to try and solve that through what was back then just a one-off hackathon. And this idea, the seed of food waste reduction, led me to food emissions, led me to food tech, led me to the broader climate space, and I think I kept the credit really my parents and my
1: Turkish upbringing for that original spark. That's amazing. And in in, in that context, why are startups one of the keys to tackling climate change?
0: Mm, I I think it's just what the private markets can offer is just true innovation that you can't see, one, in research and R&D at universities, or two, in the public markets where you're essentially just chasing quarterly earnings reports. I think the private market's force teams and builders to go out and put things out there onto the market, test, iterate, fail, pivot in a way that no other sector can provide. And this just means that the the rate of innovation is just far faster than anywhere else. And so I think companies within the climate private sector is what's really going to drive the innovation in the space for reducing greenhouse gas emissions, adapting to climate change, uh, tracking and getting a deeper understanding of climate impact, I think we'll see a lot more impact right here in, in the private markets.
1: It feels like we're just getting started. This is the early beginning of that movement. And Absolutely. As a fintech entrepreneur, but also as an investor, as you invest in, in some companies with your setup, how does your day look like? Walk us through it if, if there's such a thing as a typical day in the life of Arman.
0: That was a great question. I mean, historically, what's happened is that the Food Hack community have grown quite organically from where we were, that one small event in Geneva four years ago, into this license, which is in 42 cities across the world. So we're in Stockholm, San Francisco, Cape Town, Singapore, and local ambassadors represent the Food and Climate Hack brands organizing events under their name so they can be able to bring together local innovators and Builders, investors, corporates, operators. And just next week, for instance, I think we have seven events happening across the world. That's crazy. All managed by this. Yes, yeah, it's, it's amazing. But it's, it's all credit goes to my team there, Emily and Colleen, who, who take care of leading all the communities, onboarding some incredible ambassador profiles onto the team and making sure they have all the tools and resources they need to be able to uh, bring people together. I think this year we'll host around 10 15,000 people in the meetups and then another 1,000 people at the summit that comes up in Lausanne. My day is less focused on the community expansion and, and the uh, what's happening to the events. Instead, I'm really looking for outstanding founders and builders who are working on solutions from climate impact to food tech, alt proteins, food waste reduction, climate adaption, mitigation, trying to find these exceptional companies where we can then present them to our group of investors who we have behind the scenes and be able to ideally put great capital towards great companies and making sure that these companies are heavily capitalized, ready to go take on the market, and have all the resources they need to go out and create impactful businesses.
1: Amazing. And although you're still a, a young hustler, as you described yourself before, You've been in the space for a while now. So how has the climate tech space grown in the past decade?
0: Mm, I, I think I'll flip that question back to you. What are you seeing in the climate space? What, what, what is your external view as more of a generalist, Swisspreneur, uh, builder? What are you seeing in the climate tech space?
1: Um, you know, I have a very outside perspective, so I'm not like that far involved as you are. But what I see is it's a very, very hot space right now. Especially also from a VC game, um, I see a lot of, especially American VCs, who saw that there's a sort of a business opportunity, so there's more and more money uh, flowing into that space. And at the same time, it's also, of course, from a founder perspective, you want to not only build maybe the next software company, but you want to build something with impact, something that really has a positive change on the world. So I see these two things coming together, more money being invested in in climate tech startups, but also more founders really concerning about having a positive impact and not just building yet another business.
0: Absolutely. I mean, spot on there. You've done my job already, but uh, I can definitely (laughs) jump in. I think there's a huge interest in the climate sector right now. I think climate tech has truly gone mainstream. You can read about it in Morning Brew. You can read about it in Axios. You'll see it probably in your post and in the top and everything. And it's all driven by this foundational problem. You know, climate problems aren't going anywhere. If anything, they're only getting worse. We've all seen the ski season here in Switzerland this year, the lack of snow in the mountains, the the amount of people that are waking up to say, hey, this is having real world impact on myself, my family, the, the environment around me. And this foundational problems, I think, are driving more people to flip the switch and say, I'd like to better align what I want to do with my life around these values that I feel and this idea of climate anxiety the fear that the impacts that climate uh, climate impact is having on our, our life and what life it's going to leave for our children our grandchildren I think is driving a huge amount of talent to the ecosystem and with that new companies are forming around hard to solve problems that's driving LPs. You know, the people who can't ski in Crown Montana and Verbier this weekend are waking up to say, "Hey, maybe I should also be investing or building or supporting the climate movement," which is then giving rise to the VC ecosystem, which is then driving and funding capital back to these foundational problems and teams. So, really, I think the mainstream interest of climate has has established itself. VC funding is there. We've mapped out about 180 different funds, either dedicated or as one part of their focus of their fund investing into the climate space. And I think last year there was about 40 billion invested across a thousand venture and growth deals in the climate sector today. And every day it feels like a new founder, a new operator, a new builder is coming into the space. And honestly, it's just the exci- one of the most exciting times to be building and
1: working here. Amazing. Yeah, the momentum is certainly here. Maybe to zoom out a bit, what actually constitutes a climate company? Because many people are talking about it, but you are exactly the right person to ask, what makes a climate company a climate company?
0: I think there's multiple definitions, but the simplest way to think about it is a reduction of greenhouse gas emissions or addressing impacts of global warming created due to the climate change happening across the world. So you can imagine mitigation or remove, removal of emissions across the ecosystem, adaption to climate change, enhancing of understanding and observation of the climate impact, removal of carbon emissions and regeneration, regeneration activities that reverse uh, climate activities
1: today. Perfect. And there are also multiple areas that form the climate tech space, right? So food is one of them, but there are many more. What what are the different areas that belong to the climate tech sector?
0: Yeah, I think we define it as a few key sectors. One, energy. So how we produce our energy. Two, the built environment, everything that's being manufactured around us and the emissions there. Three, carbon reduction, tracking, reduction, understanding. Four, climate management. So as a result of the observation and the and, and, um, tracking, how can we uh, operate around that? Five, industrial emissions coming from everything from manufacturing of foods to transportation. Uh, six, transportation, which is a subsector with, within industrial. And seven, food and land use. So how do we produce
1: our foods today? And now for the next part, I would like to focus a bit more strongly on the food solutions part, because they make up around 25% of the total global greenhouse gas emissions you shared with me prior to the call. Some say it's even higher than that, up to 34%, I think, are some studies saying. So this obviously has a massive impact on the whole green tech and climate tech. Uh, movement, basically. So first of all, why is the food space a problem, but also a solution at the same time?
0: It's a great question. And, you know, food is very close to our heart. I I mentioned the story about how food waste has always been a topic close to us and how we grew out from this food tech ecosystem today. I think a lot of investors uh, within the broader climate space underestimated how big and impactful the food system can be. And today, as you mentioned, you know, it's responsible for at least 25 percent of total global greenhouse gas emissions and livestock alone represents two thirds of food system emissions today. This isn't a result of us mismanaging or misbuilding it. This is the way we structured the food ecosystem to be built today. And this is a result of how we've built it and incentivized farmers and growers and food producers to build the, the ecosystem And, you know, just looking about will this problem continue to get worse as the years come, there's expected to be 10 billion people on Earth to feed, of which a growing middle class who tend to like to eat more animal based greenhouse gas intense foods. So it's not like we're heading in the right direction, we're heading in the wrong direction. And that's not even touching upon all the problems we have with food waste and how today one third of all the food we produce is being wasted. And I think really, when you take this view on the food ecosystem, you see how much food production we need to increase in order to meet our, our, our targets for how many people are going to be around and how the non-sustainable foods are typically the ones to get uh, used and bought. And, and re, uh, more, more people tend to essentially take foods which are higher emissions. Uh, that's really driving this, this uh, underlying problem that we have, where I think we should be paying far more attention, uh, building far more solutions and putting far more capital
1: towards. Absolutely. And one of the main avenues for innovation in food tech is the meat alternatives. We know, as you already said, that our current meat consumption is unsustainable, but are there good alternatives on the market already today?
0: Yeah, there's taking a step back there. There's one thing I love that a uh, very smart investor, Steve Molino from Clear current Capital tells me is that we should think of animals as a technology. You know, Essentially what we're doing is we are growing them, feeding them, nurturing them, getting them ready for production, for slaughter, breaking those pieces of meat up for a way to be able to feed people across the world. And that is, if you take that as a pure technological uh, method to producing our foods, you'll see it's incredibly un- efficient and you know it requires so much land use so much water so much time all for an outcome which isn't optimized for yield or uh, per, or production and i think alternative proteins is basically saying why are we spending so much time resources and effort growing animals, when we can skip the need to do that and instead give people the plants directly in a form that they can still be able to meet their dietary requirements, feed themselves in a nice, healthy way and eat foods that they love. And even thinking about that even further, we have the precision fermentation companies coming out and building alternatives that are just as good, if not better than our favorite meats and milks and cheeses and eggs, or looking further into the future, the cultivated meat space where companies are creating identical versions of our favorite T-bone steak or sirloin steak, but without the need of this extremely inefficient technological method of growing a cow or a chicken or a pig or whatever it might be.
1: Are you saying sort of in in, in that sense, I like the, the perspective of, you know, viewing that as a technology, it's a very inefficient technology. Are you therefore saying that food tech companies should focus on developing alternative technologies and move away from fishing or dairy cow farming, so to speak?
0: Exactly. I think if we're ready to feed the world sustainably in the next 5, 10, 15, 50 years, animals as the technology and the means to be able to do that is not the most efficient way. And as you said, we need to look at alternative technologies that can feed us in a more sustainable way. And I think that is the plant-based, the old protein precision fermentation, the cultivated meat companies, all working here to remove animals and just better use our resources and the foods that we already produce today to be able to feed people more sustainably, more healthy, and in a way that's more efficient
1: as a whole. Right. And one of the different technologies could be transgenic foods. Some people see that as the boogeyman, as the solution to really you know, come in and, and help us to solve it all. What kind of role will they play in our food future?
0: I mean, I I wish we didn't have to have a need for them, but unfortunately we do. The impacts of climate change just mean that the way we produce food isn't sustainable, nor is it suitable for the changing environment and weather conditions that we have. And with that, we need to search for different methods to be able to provide some level of security on food production and yield and harvest so that everyone across the supply chain is paid, is paid fairly. And the end result is enough food to be able to feed this growing population. So we see companies working on, you know, new versions of tomatoes that require less sunlight or new versions of uh, rice that don't require as much water. All of this is a net positive. We're going to end up with foods that are far more efficient. And going back to, you know, the technology analogy, if there was a in productivity app that made you click on 10 different steps before you could set up your calendar, and there was a way to do it in two steps instead, why wouldn't you take that approach? I think when it comes to food, it is so personal, and it's something that we all have strong emotions to, that we sometimes get blinded by those emotions that we can actually see this is a net positive to be able to create and find new solutions that allow us to be able to create foods more efficient and ensure we have a sustainable food supply for the long term. So I'm all for these crazy ideas in the SynBio, GMO, all protein space, because we really, really need it. And I think that's something to drive home, is that if we continue with the way that our food system is built today, we are looking at a huge climate disaster. We are looking at reduction of people's capital earnings from the food ecosystem, all across the supply chain, and we're looking at the end result of food shortages across the world.
1: That's a very, very big challenge to solve. I Yeah, it's certainly a big, big challenge ahead <laughs> of us. Another thing that we often see to not only reduce the footprint, but also to say, hey, I want to eat more local, is vertical farming. Some say its energy costs are astronomical. It just doesn't make sense to use it. What is your take on the vertical farming trend? It's certainly one that's attracted a lot of VC funding. I think about
0: 1.7 billion has been invested into indoor growers. And I think that my short answer is is that it's maybe not an area where VCs should have come into expecting tech-like returns, because at the end of the day, you are essentially a farm, moved indoor and optimized. And then the pressure these companies have to be able to adhere to the return profiles and return time cycles of venture capitalists who have invested you know, hundreds of millions in the space did not align with the actual outcomes of what these companies can produce. I think there's a, there's a great quote from Henry Gordon Smith of uh, Agriculture. He says, Silicon Valley investors won't invest in a farm, but they'll invest in a tech company. And I think that idea is what drove such a boom into the space. Startups, of course, are responsible for uh, promising yields and returns and prices that maybe we, the ecosystem wasn't ready for. And as you said before, it's it's very much at the realm of what are the current energy prices, because growing plants requires a heck of a lot of energy. And currently with our energy crisis that we're going through and prices going up, you can already imagine that these companies are struggling with their input costs. Uh, the, the cost of human capital, because these companies have robotics and engineering and sales executives and vice presidents. They have such a huge amount of staff for a food that's essentially very low margin. You know, at the end of the day, you're trying to produce leafy greens and herbs that are sold in the co-ops and migros around you. And this is in a system that's already quite optimized and efficient and where prices are driven down, down, down. And with this heavy focus on R&D and technology and these large staff and this a huge amount of capital, what it essentially means is that these companies are offsetting their costs with VC funding. And now when we're seeing with this energy crisis happening, uh, there was maybe too much overpromise, too little delivered. But the, I, the premise of, of indoor farming makes a lot of sense. You know, If we really look at why our companies here... In theory, they can have 90% less water used than traditional farms. Fantastic. We can avoid uh, outbreaks, E. coli and diseases that typically can happen in these different farms. We can eliminate pesticides and reduce fertilizers. We can grow different crops in controlled environments, not at the realm of the climate or the weather around us. And I think there's a lot of promise around these ideas. And we've invested into some companies around the indoor farming space just not focused on leafy greens, where the energy production is so high and where you're really at the whelm of the the environmental conditions around you.
1: So in that regard, vertical farming will definitely play or have a role in the future of solving the big problems that we have ahead of us.
0: I believe it will, but we'll see a lot of consolidation and closures in the time before we get there. Right.
1: There's one last part in the food space that I want to talk to you about, and that's the whole food packaging because now we talked about the food itself, right? How do we produce it? How do we move from one technology to the other, which is, of course, very important. But then uh, another big leverage that we have is the whole packaging part. What trends do we see coming up there and how important is the whole packaging part compared to the other things we talked about so far?
0: Absolutely. I mean, first off, the second part of that question. It is not as important as the way we produce and distribute our foods, but it is a problem worth tackling today. You can walk into your local grocer and see a cucumber wrapped up in plastic. That plastic will end up in a landfill. It won't be recycled. It'll just pile up. That happens thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of times a day. And our plastic problem is only getting worse. I remember the last flight I had uh, across the Atlantic, and I saw just these bu- these pools of plastic pulling together, you know, based on the currents that are taking trash and plastic and, and this is going to go into our water and everybody knows about the issue of microplastics coming back into human consumption of different foods and animals and and into our uh, soil and, and so on. So it's a problem that's absolutely worth tackling and it's great to see how much interest there is, particularly in the biomaterial space. So companies that are finding ways to, you know we have a huge reliance on plastic today. There's no way to avoid it when you go pick up your strawberries or your blueberries. They're going to be in this plastic packaging. But can we replace the way that plastic is made today? Or can we change the way that plastic is uh, disposed of so that it doesn't end up being this huge landfill issue that we have? So there's companies tackling both sides, using everything from algae to mycelium to create new versions of plastics to, um, you know, uh, enzymes and microbes that essentially eat the plastic, so that they don't end up in landfills. I think these solutions, though, are still many years away before mass production, and we're not going to see it in our stores in, in the, in, you know, tomorrow or next year. Because in order to scale up these technologies, many of them are still in the very very early pilot stages, or maybe pre-commercialization stages, and to get them ramped up to the level where a, a Nestle or a migro would be comfortable to use is still far way out and in the meantime there are companies working on these bio coatings you know companies like appeal where they actually reduce the need for having plastic wrappings all together i think these type of solutions we'll see well, we're seeing them on the market today and we'll see them create a bigger impact sooner than the biomaterial space which is emerging but but also will take a lot longer lifetime to be able to uh, come to fruition
1: It's really exciting so there's also a lot of movement and and new technology development happening in that space too that's great to see exactly up next i also want to tackle the vc perspective on climate tech including of course uh food tech as well so we already talked about at the beginning when we did the intro that there's sort of a momentum right there's more more money flowing into the the climate tech space Where is that capital being allocated and what are investors excited by today?
0: It's a fantastic question. It's a question I ask myself uh, every single day to see what are VCs excited by this quarter. I think it's all being driven by this thing that we talked about in the beginning, these foundational problems that are driving LPs to be able to, to ask VCs, hey, what is your climate strategy? And that's driving dedicated funds in the climate sector, that's driving generalist funds to start investing more into the climate sector as well. These problems won't go anywhere and they will continue to get worse. What does that also mean in the perspective of VCs? These problems are here to stay and here to make you know venture-like returns in. And where I'm typically seeing funding going to right now is these really hard-to-solve, hard-tech problems of decarbonizing difficult industries like food production, or manufacturing, or transportation, how can we be able to create the outputs that we need in order to feed the world, to move the world around, to keep the world's lights on in a way that doesn't put as much pressure or or, or, uh, as much stress onto the planet? A few hot segments, I think, right now are energy optimization. We recently did a mapping of the 80 Swiss tech companies, climate tech companies out there. I think 24 of these companies were in the energy optimization space. Whether that's a good thing or bad thing, we can debate that all we like. But, you know, why why is this space attracting so much VC attention? Because it's a software-based solution. Essentially, these are companies monitoring, tracking, and offering enterprise uh, solutions to large-paying customers who already have pressures to reduce their energy consumption. And I think we're seeing this convergence of hard tech and software creating solutions that are driving decarbonization, energy reduction across all these different industries. Me particularly, I'm very excited by the biomanufacturing space. So companies that are using biology, tech, science to be able to reduce emissions from everything like our metals and minerals, the way that we, we build them, we produce them, our food supply chain. We've been actively investing there. Uh, everything to packaging, biomaterials companies that are building completely new ways to be able to um, produce the same packaging needs that we have today. I think the biomanufacturing space is one sector that's getting more and more interest from VCs, but has a whole lot of caveats in that it's extremely difficult, risky, and expensive to scale up. So maybe some investors prefer to sit sit elsewhere in the uh, in the in the more software based uh, sector. But overall, you can see a lot of capital has gone towards energy and transportation. And these are two of the hottest sectors of 2022 to be seen, whether they're they're still the hottest sectors going to 2023.
1: If we sort of draw that back to the food space that we talked about before, you know, I like the the software analogy in the energy space, because there you basically have high potential returns, exactly what VCs are looking for, software is scalable, etc., However, in the food tech space, that is often not that easy the case. Maybe I'm wrong, but I'm just curious because investors, they like the, you know, the scalable solution that can grow fast with the food tech space. You usually always have a manufacturing part or a technology part that from at least from my outside perspective, doesn't seem to be as scalable as software in the energy sector. Is that sort of a challenge to attract more money into that specific food tech space because, the returns if you don't have a highly scalable solution and software might also be lower compared to other areas that these VC investors could invest their money into?
0: Yeah, I think that's a great question that I wish was asked earlier on into the food and ag funding boom. At the end of the day, food tech companies are producing food. And if we want to value food tech companies as they should be, as food manufacturers will see that the the exit multiples are typically 3 to 4x uh, you know, annual revenue. And I think there was a disconnect between what was being presented and what investors told themselves they'd like to see and how big these companies could become, which maybe overinflated the actual end scenario of what these companies were doing and forcing founders and companies to be built in ways that, manufacturing companies just simply can't adhere to. At the end of the day, you need to put resources in, produce something somewhere in a factory, and sell that end product to a buyer. And there's only so much optimization and resource efficiency that you can do. At the end of the day, you're in a market competing on price, and production is such an expensive beast to tackle. So, I think that that's why it's driven maybe less interest this year. We've seen food tech funding significantly drop uh, this year. Maybe VCs and investors and founders and the whole ecosystem, you know, ourselves included, overinflated the potential uh, of these solutions to, to drive to drive not change change. The, there's a huge impact that can be created thanks to these food companies, but to create shareholder value. And I think uh, now we're waking up to the reality that food tech companies should be valued as food companies. And with that, valuations are addressing across the board.
1: To me, this is also sort of a bit part of the root of the problem, right? You should have more money in that space. The trend is good, but there could even be more money and there's also more money needed in the food tech space, especially. But due to the less attractive returns, you don't get that solved as fast as we need it. Although it would be really, really important to solve that problem in the world. So that's sort of a bit of the dilemma that yes, it's important to get solved, but the returns are not that attractive. So therefore you have probably less money than we should have in the space. Exactly. I think we repackaged the food tech
0: sector to look like a sector that could have the same massive returns as software and the same timelines that funds uh, typically need. And maybe that is the case and maybe that will be the case, but right now at the end of the day, it's hard tech, it's manufacturing, And these things take time. They need time to mature. They can't typically adhere to a 10-year fund cycle. And there are still investors investing in the space, and we are actively investing in the food tech sector as well. But it's with this adjusted scope that, look, these are manufacturers at the end of the day. And and I hope more capital continues to come to the sector for all the issues we talked about before, 25% of greenhouse gas emissions, a growing population that wants greenhouse uh, heavy foods, and I would encourage more investors to continue to deploy into this space because these are fundamental issues. These are great companies being built at the at the turning point of, of you know, about to put their technology to commercialization, a growing interest from consumers and retailers and everybody to have these more sustainable solutions. And I think it, we're really still at the very beginning of what the food tech sector can drive in terms of impact and also returns.
1: Absolutely. And I'm also wondering, you know, your take on the VC landscape, because it's growing, it's getting crowded in the VC landscape, even in the whole climate tech space. And where do you see an opportunity for new climate funds to launch or just new opportunities to tap into?
0: Mm. It's true that there's been a lot of VCs enter the sector of climate recently. I think there we did a mapping and there were 150, 160 different funds we saw across uh, Europe, US and APAC, whether well, that, that's dedicated funds purely deploying into climate solutions or generalists investing with a, with a climate angle. Uh, and the reason why that's maybe something to look at uh, with more attention is because at the end of the day, funds need to convince LPs to deploy capital into their fund. And with this current market downturn, where LPs are a bit more cautious of their overall venture portfolio, they're less likely to take a bet on an emerging manager, especially in an emerging manager in a crowded space like climate, where for every one Jane Doe climate fund, there's 10 other John Doe climate funds, and they have a, 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 an abundance of choice. And what we're seeing is LPs are actually going towards the more established managers in this market downturn than the emerging ones. And so if you are to start a climate fund today, you should think seriously about how can i best position myself to be competitive in the market to attract lps to show that i have a unique alpha in the market and i think some ways to do that is to one hone in on a niche you know there's climate is such a broad segment that we talked about transport built environment food and ag energy maybe pick just one of those or maybe within one of those pick it, pick a, even a sub niche of biomanufacturing or infrastructure or optimization, or enabling technology, and just focus on building a fund there and being the best small micro fund for the built environment. Focus on geographies that are underlooked. When we did our mapping of Europe, US, APAC, Africa, there were significantly fewer numbers in APAC, Africa, and MENA. And I can just see that there's so many great companies being built there as well, and, and nobody's really looking at them. I'm an investor purely focused on APAC or Africa. Is a hook in its own even though it comes with its own challenges. Stage, if we look at the VC funding landscape, it is not distributed equally. There's a unproportionately high number of investors in the pre-seed seed series A stage. Then there's this super hard mid-stage value of death where there are no VCs really actively investing or there's far fewer and then again, it upticks in the growth stage of the later stage PE firms and you know the, the multifamily offices that are investing pre-IPO. So maybe find that empty opportunity in the mid-stages where things are hard, where companies are scaling up and they need capital. No one else wants to take a chance on them. It, it, build the build fund around that. There's so many ways to build differentiation into a fund. I think because the market has become so competitive and because you have the other underlying issue of LPs, being more hesitant with where to put their capital and going for emerging managers, you really need to show an alpha, a thesis, and back that up with a track record and a strong team and strong founder referrals to be able to raise in today's environment for the
1: climate climate tech ecosystem. Exactly what you're doing today.
0: Well, we're trying as well, but I I really see ourselves as the uh, support for emerging funds, for emerging syndicates, for companies that are raising, for companies that maybe venture funding isn't right for them, but debt financing would be. And yes, we have been playing the market, deploying into different companies across the ecosystem today, about 30 companies to date. And we do have a particular focus for biomanufacturing, where I think there's high impact, but less investor interest today. Uh, but I think it's a, it's a very exciting time to be building, working or investing to the climate tech ecosystem.
1: Definitely. I'm also very excited about the next question to hear your take. What are some areas exciting you about climate that you'd love to see more founders and investors working on?
0: Mm -hmm. The other week I had uh, Quentin from Joint Capital on Climate Hack with us And he came to talk about the manufacturing industry and how the manufacturing sector is one of the largest contributors to global CO2 emissions. I think it's about 30% of global emissions. But funding here has just paled in comparison to other industries, maybe where there's more scalable solutions. So I think overall about 10% of global climate tech funding went to manufacturing space. 90% went to other industries with arguably less impact based on just how much emissions comes from the space. So looking at Things like energy efficiency, electrification, low carbon fuels, carbon capture companies like Climeworks in there. You know, how many other Climeworks are there? Not, not that many, because these are inherently difficult problems to solve. So where we, we like to invest is in these very difficult, hard, scientific-based companies that have massive impact potential, but of course, with that, are far more risky far more resource heavy and far less proven because founders in this space will tell you, I'm going to make this 50X, 100X cheaper, but there's no way to know at the pre-seed stage. There's no way to know at the seed stage. Even by the series A, we're still guessing and shooting in the dark, but these are some of the sectors that really need more capital towards. So decarbonized manufacturing is something that we're looking at very closely and have been actively investing into. I think more investors should step up to the plate and be investing into these hard tech comp- solutions. I think we're, with the market downturn, we're also seeing more people withdraw capital from there and put it towards software based solutions. So uh, I'd, I'd recommend everyone go and read uh, the last piece on Climate Hack about decarbonized manufacturing to really dig deep into that space.
1: Amazing. And Armand, to wrap up today's conversation, we also prepared some rapid fire questions for you. I give you a quick question or different options to choose from and you have to answer in one sentence. You ready? Perfect. Let's go for it. What's your favorite dish of all time?
0: Mm. In Turkey, we have this thing called Tawuk Palau, uh, which is essentially chicken and rice. And all it is, is plain basmati rice, chicken grilled and a few scoops of Greek yogurt. Today, I still have that dish. I just switch out the chicken for plant-based planted and for the yogurt. Well, I'm still looking for an amazing Greek yogurt that's plant-based.
1: Hopefully uh, one of your portfolio companies can do that. Uh, exactly. <laughs> what is your favorite animal protein alternative?
0: Yeah, I mean, we're here in Switzerland and I have to absolutely shout out to the team of planted. Yeah, I had it last night. I'll probably have it right after this call. I think they have an incredible product that uh, is available in Groceries all around us was extremely accessible. Another one outside of Switzerland is Juicy Marbles. They do whole cut plant based versions of filet mignons, which are absolutely delicious. And of a few of our portfolio companies still in stealth are working on everything from mycelium bacon to whole cuts of your favorite uh, deli slices. But those ones uh, we'll keep in private for now.
1: Nice. I'm excited to t- test them out myself.
0: I'll I'll send you a whole care package of the the Food Eye portfolio. Perfect.
1: Do you regret making investment or regret not making it if you have to choose?
0: Uh, I've regretted the missing out on some companies in the past, and they still keep me up at night uh, when I wake up in the middle of the night thinking I should have invested into that. Typically investors look for what they can default in the company, not what they can see. And in some cases, I think I wasn't able to see enough of the big picture and ended up not writing the check where I wish I would have.
1: But I guess that's part of the learning curve, right? (laughs) Exactly. What does healthy look like in your personal diet?
0: I think healthy is something I've struggled with a long time in my life. And I think being a founder healthy does not fall under top priority, uh, I've tried the diet fads. I've tried the intermittent fasting. Overall, I think it's consumption and moderation and consumption of whole foods as much as possible.
1: I think that's a very simple, but also very good approach to start with. Fantastic.
0: But you look in shape, so I'll take whatever tips you're taking.
1: <laughs> well, I don't really have a, a, a personal diet plan. It's a struggle myself. I just like to work out. That's probably my... Uh, Sort of alternative way Bounces to handle it. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I have one last question for you. In climate, do you have a great book or a great podcast to recommend for anyone who wants to get started and learn more about this space?
0: Yeah. How to Avoid a Climate Disaster by Bill Gates is a fantastic easy read that we actually sent to all of our portfolio companies and all of our investors and employees. I highly encourage it. It's a very easy book to pick up and read. Or more on the newsletter side and media side, Climate Tech VC is my go-to resource for everything climate-related. They pull together such uh, relevant resources going highly in-depth into the Climate Tech ecosystem, and I really recommend uh, checking those guys out.
1: Amazing. I think that's the perfect way to end the conversation today. Arman, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's really impressive what you've built with your team. And we are so excited to continue following your journey and to see what you're coming up with next.
0: So, man, a huge pleasure. Thank you so much and excited to see Swuspringer continue growing.
1: We hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, you can support us by rating our show on Apple Podcasts. This way, we can reach an ever-growing number of aspiring entrepreneurs.